0: Good morning, it's awesome to be here with you guys. We're in week three of It's All About Relationships, and we've been diving into this deeper uh, connective tissue of what it means uh, to have great relationships, and we've been working through uh, the life of David. And for two weeks, we just focused on Psalm 23 and David's connectivity to his core relationship with God. And that all of his great relationships flowed out of having a connective tissue to an, a, a, a great relationship with God. And we talked about how it's written from the perspective of sheep. And it uh, was pretty funny to just think about uh, all of the ways that sheep are not awesome. And uh, no school's uh, mascot is the fighting sheep. Uh, you have <laughs> you have nobody who wants to align themselves with that. Yet Scripture, time and time again, tells us you're like sheep, and God's like a shepherd. And I'm like, God, seriously, give me something cool, any like offensive weapon at all, even just like a narwhal. Give me one horn. Give me anything that would like make me tough. And He's like, No, you're like sheep. And then we see in the scriptures, the story and the narrative uh, evolves as Jesus comes onto the scene. And before he leaves this earth, he tells his disciples that you started this journey with me as servants, and now you know the master's business. John 15, 15, he says, now I'm calling you friends. I'm calling you friends. Now, why the shepherd's friends with sheep is awesome. But he looks at us and he says, hey, I see the value in you. And you have a piece of what I'm doing here on earth. And so now I call you friends. And I think that's amazing that God looks at us and He says, bro, hug, we're friends. But then I look around at the way we manage our friendships and I go, ah, sometimes we stink at friendship. And if we stink at friendship with one another, how are we gonna do this well with God? And so I feel the tension. How many of you would say that you have, and you could just kind of nod your head at me, you don't have to out yourself, you have really amazing friends. They may be in the room, so you may have to lie to me a little bit, but that's okay. But you have really amazing friends. Just kind of give me the nod, like, yeah, yeah, some of you. How many of you would say, yeah, I'm, I, don't, I don't have amazing, amazing friends. I've been looking, I've been kind of looking, yeah. So friends is a tough thing. We struggle with this. You know, we kind of landed on this core relationship requires some things. And the first thing it requires is time. It gets harder and harder and harder and harder to look at the screen. There you go. (laughs) With those Seahawks up there. It gets harder and harder in our current age to give people time. I'm out of order. That's my fault. We also struggle with the fact that we're just not close. We don't have because we don't have time, we can't get to one another. If I had like a dollar for every time I tried to get in proximity of someone and we couldn't make it work. Right? It's just hard. My schedule, like your schedule, we're like a month out and then something happens and it changes and it's just hard to get proximity. We live in a culture that has taught us to manage our friendships from a distance. We don't get close. Because if you're really close to me, you might pick up, come on now, on something I don't want you to pick up on. It's much easier for you to meet my Facebook ambassador. I can maintain the lie, come on, if you don't get close. But core friendships require proximity. They require that we get close. They require time. You're not great friends with someone you spend no time with. You might have a memory of being a great friend with them. But you're not great friends with them if you've spent no time. And then, (laughs) no one likes talking about this one, but it's the key to every great relationship. Submission. Every great relationship has submission in it. Every great friendship. Ephesians tells us, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. The problem is we hear submission and we think someone dominates someone else. That's not what submission is. Submission is, I take my strength my energy, what I have to offer, and I give it to you to prop you up because I want you to succeed. And then you give your strength, your energy, what you have to offer, your skill set, and you give it to me and you lend your strength to me so that I can succeed. And that's what healthy submission looks like. It says, hey, if you can stand on the platform of my skill set and my gifts so that you can reach higher than you could have reached on your own. And I get to stand on the platform of your skill set and your gifts and who you are and what you bring to the table. You know that every great relationship requires submission. You know it does. Here's how you know. Who do you call when it's time to move? You call your friends. You want to know which friends that come? The ones who are willing to submit, who are able to lend their strength, lend their back, lend their time, lend their skill, lend their willingness to watch your kids so you can get something, whatever it is, that's submission. We get a picture of submission as I'm dominant. It's not the biblical model of submission at all. It's you get to borrow my strength great friendships require that. You also know that when someone is constantly demanding that from you and not returning it to you, you end up moving away from that friendship, right? It wears you out. Come on, you've all got someone, don't look around, who has worn you out. They're constantly in need mode. Submit to me, 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 and you're like, ah, that's all I got, Mutual submission is a core element for great friendships to survive. It's required. We, we look at our relationship with God and you're like, well, God doesn't submit. To which I say, no, that's absurd. He initiated submission, He sent His Son, He got down off the throne, became God in a bod, <laughs> took on human flesh. I'm just seeing if you're still awake. Took on human flesh took the nature of a servant, got down on his hands and knees and washed feet and marched to the cross. Tell me God didn't lend his strength to us. It's not true. Every great relationship, every great friendship requires submission. Some of you are like, yeah, you don't understand, Pastor Mike. I don't have time. No one's close. Submission's a lot of work. I'm fine. Don't bother me with friendship nonsense. I just do well in my circle, which is my bubble, and as long as no one breaks into it, I'm okay. To which I say nonsense. You were designed for that. Rick Warren, he wrote Purpose Driven Life, outline some critical, critical reasons that you need great friends. We're going to run through a couple of them uh, just quickly here because it's kind of fun. One of the reasons that you need great friends, spiritual growth. The scriptures tell us, uh, Romans 1:12, that you may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith. is the end of that, right? That you and I may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith. Your spiritual growth accelerates when you're in relationship with other people, come on now, who also have a relationship with God. And there's growth that happens in your life. Your spiritual life demands friendships. It needs it. I'm just telling you what the Bible says. Emotional support. The second one. You need great friends for emotional support. In the scriptures, there's 58 times the scriptures tell us one another. Love one another. Submit to one another. Behave however it says. The one another's of scriptures, there's 58 times. It's like you need one another. I've given you one another. James 5.16, Therefore, confess your sins to each other. Pray for each other so you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. Hold on a second. We talked about the confession piece in the confession app. None of you went online and listened to that, so I know you didn't like it, but that's okay. (laughs) Biblical confession requires other people to be involved. Why? Because you want to get healed. And when you want to get healed, you need the support of other people. Ask anyone who's been through recovery. Ask anyone who's been through any of those steps the importance of having other friends and peers and people in your life that can bring accountability to you, that can help you spur one another on. Now, here's the thing. I struggle sometimes with the accountability idea because here's what's in my core. I'm naturally skeptic, right? Right? And so I look at the idea of accountability and I go, so you're telling me that you'll go commit a horrible act, but you won't lie to me about it. So what's the benefit of accountability if I believe that you, you see what I'm saying there? Like you'll go cheat on your spouse, but when I talk to you, you'll tell me the truth. That's how accountability works. And so I had this skepticism in me about accountability if it really worked. Until so I looked at the scriptures and I said, oh, the purpose of that is so that we can partner with one another so that we can be healed. Oh, all right, Pastor Mike, you're a little, you're a little arrogant there. You're going to have to come down off that a little bit and go, okay, maybe the scriptures are right. And maybe I'm a little sarcastic and I got to be honest about the fact that I don't have it all together. You can lie to me, but it doesn't mean I'm not going to do what the scriptures ask us to do because I want you to be healed and I want to be healed. We need each other the reason why we're pushing for you to get in small groups and into community with other believers, it's not because I have some quota that I have to fill or the church has some agenda that it needs to somehow do. It's because it's what's best for your life, and we believe it. In order to do what this book says, in order to live it, we got to get into community. We have to be with each other. And the prayer of the righteous person is powerful and effective. Galatians 6-2, carry each other's burdens, and in this way you'll fulfill the law of Christ. Doesn't say, carry your own burden. Like, Pastor Mike, I'm strong. I carry my own burden easy. Okay. What you don't do is fulfill the law of Christ then. So good job, but you lose. (laughs) Just saying. Just saying. I don't make this stuff up. Carry each other's burdens. You're designed to carry each other. Some of you are like, oh, you don't understand. Their burdens are brutal. All right. Get into relationships that are healthy, have mutual submission, and then carry each other's burdens. Come on. Some of you know you've been in long-term relationships with someone, and for a long time, uh, it's been awesome. And then all of a sudden, it got hard. Something went wrong in their life, and it was like, oh, this was so easy when everything was going right in your life. I loved having you around when everything went right in your life. And then something flipped. Something got difficult, and you had to process Were you gonna live this? Did you believe that you were strategically placed as part of the body in this person's life? You've been on the other side of that. Come on now, you've been on the other side of that. You've had some what you thought were great friends, and something went tough. Kid got sick, marriage got shattered, some other element lost a job, and all of a sudden you were in a position of need and you looked around for those friends. Do they live this? This is what the scripture says we need. People who come around each other and carry each other's burdens. That's the purpose of having great friends. Oh, I don't need great friends. Okay, so you're not going to experience any tragedy? You don't need to fulfill the law of Christ. Okay, you got me. Where am I at? Number three, social enjoyment. Social enjoyment. It's okay that you have a good time. You were designed to have a good time. Some of you have defined your life by going from misery to misery. Stop it. Just stop it. Don't do that. That's not how the scripture designs our life. Even Paul says, I've been through, been through everything, but he's found contentment in every circumstance. We're intended to enjoy this experience. God wants you to have social enjoyment. There's a, a, an old parable or an old phrase that, that said, basically, when you have a close friend, your joys are doubled because you get to share them. Your sorrows are halved because you get to share them. Life's better. The social enjoyment component is important. God, look down, Genesis chapter two. We don't talk about this enough. The Lord God said, it's not good for the man to be alone. I'll make a helper suitable for him. Hold on a second. He said that before sin came into the earth, before the apple, before the narrative changed, when when man was living in paradise, in a paradise scenario, God said, alone is not good. You need social enjoyment. You need the pleasure of another person's company. You were designed for it. And let me tell you in on a secret this ain't paradise. This ain't. I mean, it's not saying it's awful, but it ain't paradise. In a paradise situation, you still needed somebody to enjoy it. Social enjoyment is a value in the scriptures. It's important. I'll give you one more reason because some of you are still not believing me. In order to reach goals... In order to reach goals, in order to accomplish all of the things that you were designed to accomplish, to reach those goals, God says, hey, I will give you to one another. Ecclesiastes uh, says it this way, two are better than one because they have a good return for their work. If one falls down, his friend can help him up. But pity the man who falls down and has no one to help him. And we're talking 30 200 years ago, they had that figured out, give or take. It's better if you want to accomplish something if you got somebody else with you. You need their skill set. You need their input. You need them pushing you in your drive. You need their back and their strength. You need their support. You need them to balance the other end of the thing that you're working on. It's better. Some of you are like, I just need my alone time. Yeah, you can get your alone time too. I'm just telling you. You want to accomplish everything God's given you to accomplish? You need, some, you need some cheerleaders around you. You need some support. Some people who believe in you. Some people who speak life into you. Some people who have the right perspective when you get jaded. When you hit your thumb with a hammer for the 99th time and you throw the hammer down, you're like, I'm never building this fence. You need someone to say, chill out. It's okay. You got this. You can do it. I'll hold the log. Go on. Swing. <laughs> no, don't do that. <laughs> so... If at least I've got you considering the fact that you might need good friends. Some of you are like, I still don't think I need anybody. It's okay. At least we're having the conversation. We're breaking in a little bit. We're talking about the fact that God says, hey, I relate to you now as friends. Jesus says, you you know what I'm up to. You're my friends. The scriptures tell us we need to do friendship. But some of you are like, I've been trying, Pastor Mike. I don't know how to figure it out. It's funny how we all want to figure out how to make friendships work. If they're important, there's got to be some kind of model for it. What's interesting is I I love this picture because it's a picture of how the world tells us there's got to be some methodology to it that we can solve. But our tools aren't limited to just a methodology that the world gives us. In fact, Romans chapter 12 verse 2 says, don't conform any longer to the pattern of this world but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. And I think sometimes our struggle is we think, okay, we need friends. So we turn on the TV and see what the friends look like. Or we, we go to some uh, uh, environment and we look at people and we go, okay, so somehow I have to model what they're doing in order for me to have friends. Yeah, the scripture says that's always a recipe for disaster. It's always a recipe for us to walk in to some uh, uh, environment and just go to the, come on, the least objectionable methodology and try to make that happen. So we're going to aim a little higher than that model this morning. And I'm going to take you through what the scriptures show us as maybe the most powerful friendship in, uh, in all of the Bible, at least. And it's between David and Jonathan. And so if you have your Bibles, you can jump ahead of me. I'm going to roll through so many areas of scripture, but I'm going to be in uh, 1 Samuel, and you can bounce over to there. I'm going to end up in chapter 18 and then in chapter 20, and so you can get ahead of that. But here's the thing. We can recognize throughout the scriptures that God cares about us having friends, and the most epic friendships are pictured in the scriptures. And so we're going to try to figure out this story of friendship with David and Jonathan. Now, oftentimes, we don't talk that much about Jonathan in the Bible. Some of you don't even know who Jonathan is. I say David, and you're like, yeah, connected to Jesus, Christmas story, Goliath, Bathsheba, those are big stories. And we know that. David was a shepherd boy, and we also know that. We know he got drafted into the military service after defeating Goliath. We know he had successful battles and ladies ended up singing his praise and singing songs about him and he got more and more popular. We know that Saul was the king at that time. We know that Saul uh, had been promoted as the first king of Israel and so there wasn't a really good script for him to work off. He had the prophet Samuel kind of giving him, this is how you're going to do this. This is your job description. This is what it looks like to be king. We know that Saul blew it on that journey of being king, and he overstepped his area of authority, and he moved into the prophet's area of authority, and because of that, God said, "Mm -mm, I can't have a king, come on now, who thinks they have autonomy to do anything they want to do. They've got to be submitted to me for this to work. And because of that, we're going to take the kingdom away from you, Saul, and we're going to move it to David. What sometimes we don't make note of in that is Saul had an heir by the name of Jonathan. And the person who gets ripped off in this story from just a cursory look is Jonathan. Because Jonathan's the first crown prince in the history of the Israelite people. He's the first next in line to be king. Yet God shifts that over to David, a shepherd boy. Now, I don't know about you, but if I find out that my inheritance, that what I think I'm entitled to, what I grow up believing is going to be for me, gets shifted over to somebody else, That might cause a little tension in me. That might be hard to resolve. And that's Jonathan. Now, you gotta know some things about Jonathan. First thing you should know is he's not soft. Jonathan is a warrior, he's tough. The first time we meet Jonathan, he's leading a thousand men against the Philistines, and he's whomping fools. He actually has the first battle that the kingdom experiences after the judges. But once we have now a king, the first battle and the first victory, it's Jonathan's. So we know he's not a kid. He's got to be at least 18 to 20 to be leading the military at that time. And he leads the battle. The next time we see Jonathan, this is one of my favorite stories in the scriptures. He, the, the, the battle's not going so well. His dad is kind of in give up mode. And Jonathan grabs his armor bearer. Now, what's happening at this time, it's crazy. The Philistines have been dominating. This invading army has been dominating the Israelites. And one of the ways they dominated is they got rid of all the blacksmiths and all the metal and all the weapons to keep them as an agricultural society that they could just abuse and kind of enslave in different ways. They could just raid, right? So there's only a few swords in the entire army that's left over. And Jonathan has one of them. And he brings his armor bearer with him, who's got to be swordless at this point. And the two of them see a, uh, they go on a scouting mission. Again, I'm just going to take you through a bunch of stories, but they go on a scouting mission. This is someday I'll preach this just deeply because it's powerful and it's amazing. And he he sees on the top at this elevated position, a group of Philistines, a, a little battalion. And he goes, you know what? Let's go over there and see what God does. There's two of us. There's, I don't know. Eventually he finds out there's 20 guys up there, 20 soldiers armed to the teeth. And he says, eh, maybe the Lord will help us. That's literally what he says. He says, perhaps the Lord will help us. And so he climbs a rock face. Now imagine the vulnerability, right? I don't know. Have any of you seen The Princess Bride, right? When he's climbing the rock, he's climbing the rope. That's the picture I have, right? All of his enemies are up in the top and they're like, we could just kill him a million different ways right now. Let's let him get to the top because that'll be more fun to fight him that way. That's what happens. Jonathan gets to the top. He hoists his armor bearer up. They got one sword. There's 20 guys up there. They're like, what are you doing? He's like, bring it on. And he wipes them out. He's like, Braveheart, gladiator, wrapped in one, tough guy, bring it on. He's not messing with, he, 20, two on 20, wipes them out. In fact, he beats them so soundly that fear goes into the invading army because they don't know who they're facing, that there's 20 guys that gets wiped out. And the army retreats, and they have a momentary respite, relief, because of Jonathan's incredible courage. So Jonathan's not a nobody. He's not a Nothing. He's the crown prince. He's a soldier. He's a warrior. He's decorated. He's been victorious. He has faith in God. And he sees his dad as the king tanking. He sees his dad operate outside of the boundaries of the kingdom. He hears the prophet say the kingdom's going to get ripped and go into another line. He realizes that's going to happen for him. And then we fast forward and we meet David. And you know David. David's a shepherd boy. David gets anointed to be king. David plays the harp really well. David's one of those guys you can't stand because he's got every skill set. It's like, come on. He's good looking. He's a good leader. He can play guitar and sing. I mean, he's Jeff Hamill. It's ridiculous. (laughs) Unfair. Unfair. Perfect beard. (laughs) Groomed. (laughs) Oh, goodness. And so David shows up. In fact, David comes to the court. He's initially introduced to the court because he's good at playing music, and Saul has headaches and wants someone to kind of play some tunes for him. He doesn't have Pandora. He's got David (laughs) playing on the harp. David sees what happens when the Philistines, who have now kind of regathered their forces, are now encamped and about to attack Israel, and they do an old strategy. They send their biggest, baddest dude Goliath and you know the story in a winner take all match and there's no takers. We don't know where Jonathan is in this point in the story. He didn't take on Goliath though. Maybe he thought he'd done his job already or he realized, "Hey, I'm not next to be king," so whatever. I don't know. I'm just speculating. But David goes in, you know what happens, five small stones, <laughs> whap, takes out Goliath. Doesn't have a sword. It's important to note he doesn't have a sword. There's no swords. The king has a sword. Jonathan has a sword, the prince. They don't have swords. Slings and rocks is what he's got. Goliath goes down, picks up Goliath's sword, uses it on him, takes a trophy home. He's like, ah, victory. Philistines run off. The army runs ahead, kind of loots all the Philistine supplies. Now they have some weapons, a little bit of stuff, but not too much. Come back. And so we pick up the story in chapter 18 and David and Jonathan finally meet the crown prince who will not be king and the shepherd who will be king. Think about the dynamics there and how that could have gone. 1 Samuel 18, verse 1. It says, after David had finished talking with Saul, the king, it says this. Now check this out. Jonathan became one in spirit with David, and he loved him as himself. Hold on just a second there. The King James Version says they had one soul, or they shared a soul. Their souls merged. You ever meet someone and it's just like, oh, we connected. That's awesome. That's my, that's my guy. That's my gal. That's my person. That's a connect. There's a deep, seed and you're like, oh, something resonates. Something has connected. This is literally divine in nature, but that's what happens. He has a connection with Jonathan. It says he loved him as he loved himself. And from that day, Saul kept David with him, didn't let him return to his father's house, listen to this. And Jonathan made a covenant. A covenant is the deepest kind of promise that you could make with David because he loved him as himself. He says, you and I are bros. And the way he demonstrated it, verse four, Jonathan took off his robe that he was wearing and he gave it to David along with his tunic. Listen, and even his sword, his bow and his bow. Sword's important. Remember, swords are in short supplies. Sword was the symbol that you're next in line because the king and you are the only guys that have good swords. You got to imagine David as a shepherd and living in the fields, probably has homemade clothes. He's just wearing what his mama made him. He had access to wool, so he might, you know. (laughs) He's probably covered up. But he has homemade clothes. So to leave that encounter in front of all of the people with a deep friend who has said, I wanna recognize and bring honor to you and lift you up, and now you're gonna wear the clothes and you're gonna carry the sword is a crazy level of submission. It's a crazy level of saying, I'm gonna take my power, my strength, my energy, my resource, my authority, and I'm gonna use it to prop you up. Now, the problem is, This caused some friction for Saul. Saul's the king, and he just watched his son become best friends with the next king. And I don't know about you, but I could cause some friction for me too. If I'm like, hey, you just did something that you may not realize how powerful of a picture that is. You just acknowledged that God's in control. And God doesn't always have to be in control. Come on. We got some power and authority here too. We can make some decisions. And Saul's heart goes the other direction. It says from that moment on, Saul looked for a way to kill him. I'm going to paraphrase what happens in the next couple of chapters, and then we'll pick up uh, because otherwise we'll be here forever. You should read along and, and check me out. But Saul says, no, nah, I don't want that. Now, for killing Goliath, David was supposed to get to marry one of Saul's daughters. Now, that's another power play, right? Now, I went from shepherd to married in. David says, I'm just a nobody from a poor family. And Saul's like, you're right. You can't have my daughter and gives her away. But David lives around the court. Saul's got other daughters and eventually he falls in love with another daughter. This time he's actually in love with her. It's not just a trophy wife. Come on now. So they go to Saul and they say, hey, we kind of want to get married. Saul thinks, oh, perfect. Now I'll give him some mission that will get him killed in battle so that I'll be rid of him. He gives him an impossible mission. It's gross. It's hilarious. You should read the Bible. It involves minor elective surgery on many men. I'll just leave it at that. Saul says, go do this surgery on a 100 men, understanding that this would be the end of David to try to accomplish this. Not only would he be... Uh, very hard-pressed to actually do this. By doing this, he'll be such a stench in the nose of the enemy that the enemy will send everything after David to kill him. David goes out. Not only does he accomplish it, he doubles the bounty, comes back with 200 proof of purchase. (laughs) Saul doesn't know what to do. So he gives him his daughter to be married to. He's freaking out. He's not happy about it at all. David comes back victorious. There's singing, there's dancing. It's all kinds of stuff going on. Eventually, Saul's like, well, I guess if I want a job done, I'm going to have to do it myself. And for the first time out of three times, Saul chucks a spear. Saul and his spear are the highlight of this whole story for me because As I read this, I'm just, this is how I read it. I'm reading the story. I'm looking at Saul. He keeps chucking a spear. He keeps missing. The first thing I went to was, I wonder if Saul needed glasses, (laughs) right? Was the Lord like divinely protecting people or did Saul just stink with a spear? Because he chucks a spear at point blank range three different times in the next two chapters, okay? And no contact. But David's playing the harp. Saul's like, how am I going to get rid of this guy? I got the spear. He's right there playing the harp hmm no what is he gonna do i'm the king right i could just be like oh nervous twitch Vroom, throws the spear the spear goes whoo doosh, like matrix he dodges it Wow! The spear comes by he's still playing the harp he's like no right the spear goes by he's like i'm out and so he leaves he's like i'm not hanging around he flees so then saul gathers his troops and he's like david fled my house we have to kill him And he brings Jonathan in, and we see Jonathan again. Tells Jonathan, go kill him. you got to remember, Jonathan and David are bros. They're like fist bump when they see each other, like sharing one soul, connected to one another, submitting to one another, sacrificing for one another. And here's Jonathan, his highest authority, his father and the king, looking at him saying, you've got to go kill this guy. And Jonathan goes, okay, I'm submitted to your authority as king. Just answer me this. By what authority are we killing him? Because we got laws. Just give me the offense that he's committed, and I'll do what you honored asked me to do. You see, Jonathan honored his father through the whole process. His father has lost his mind. The scripture tells us he's lost his mind. But he never leaves and stops honoring. It's a pretty cool story. His dad goes, you're right. I don't have a reason to do it. I just want to. It's not good enough reason to kill somebody. Even if you're the king, I won't do it. Jonathan's like, whew. calls David. He's like, you can come back. David comes back. He's around again. Saul gets in a mood. There's more spear chucking involved. David's like, I'm out. He bounces again. He bounces. And Saul's like, all right. I can't tell Jonathan because Jonathan will stop me. I'm just going to get some troops to go out and go. So he sends a little posse after him, and that posse runs into into Samuel. Now, Samuel's still the prophet. He's an old guy, but he's still the prophet. And they see Samuel, and Samuel's like, what are you guys doing? They're like, we're going to kill the guy that you want to be king. He's like, no, you're not. Why don't you come and pray with me? And they start prophesying. Bam. It's amazing. They're like, we can't do it. Word of the Lord came. We can't do it. Saul's like, seriously? Sends another posse out. Samuel's like, oh. Come and start. He's had like a prayer circle going. They're just like tsh, 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 praying, right? They start prophesying. These aren't prophets. They start prophesying. God has a plan. We can't break the plan. Finally, Saul's like, I'll just go and do it then. He walks out there. He sees Samuel. Samuel's like, what are you doing? He's like, i got to kill David. He's like, no, you're not. Come pray with me. Bam, breakthrough. Saul starts prophesying. It says he prophesied so much that they're like, is Saul among the prophets? What is going on here? They're not even sure what to do with Saul with that. I'm cutting through much history here. David finds out, though, that Saul's intention is still to kill him. So he goes and talks to Jonathan. He says, Jonathan, listen, your dad still wants to kill me. Jonathan's like, no way. If my dad wanted to kill you, he'd tell me. He'd tell me. David's like, are you sure he'd tell you? Because last time he told you, you stopped him. And then he sent another posse and a posse, and he came himself to kill me. And Samuel stopped him, otherwise it would have happened. He actually says, I'm, I'm like a breath away from death right now. I'm in 1 Samuel chapter 20, verse 4. Jonathan says to David, whatever you want me to do, I'll do it for you. Do you have a friend like that? When you're in crisis, I just look you in the eye and say, listen, I have limited power, resources, energy, but what can I do to help? What can I do to help? What do you need? How can I help? How can I step in and bring life Into this situation. I don't have everything. I don't have unlimited time, resources, or whatever, but whatever I have that I can do, what can I do to help? Are you that friend? When someone's in that moment, I'm a breath away from death. I'm so close. Everything, all I'm trying to do is what God called me to do, and the wheels have come off. What can I do to help? What can I do to help? Do you know the power of that little phrase? What what can I do to help? Do you ever hate someone who says, what can I do to help? No. No. If you do, you need counseling. (laughs) I don't do that. (laughs) Jonathan knows his dad is crazy. Crazy. So he's like, what can I do to help? So they come up with a crazy plan in the next 20 verses or so. This is their crazy plan in a nutshell. I love this. This is the kind of plan that only two crazy friends can come up with. You ever been with your friend and you're like, let's do something just crazy because you and I will get it. You have like a hidden it's just crazy, right? I remember I was with one of my my, my at the time, my very best friend, and we had a, a mountain in town. It wasn't like Mount Rainier, it wasn't this big beautiful one. It's called Mount Diablo. And we would kind of go up on this mountain and just do dumb guy stuff that you do when you're a guy and just you know hanging out, throwing rocks, shooting stuff, things you shouldn't do, but you know, you can, you have car now so you have to explore your freedom. So so we're driving down the mountain and we're in a 1986 Chevy sprint. So the only way that thing went fast was down a mountain. But it's going fast, right? And I don't know how we started talking about faith and God's plan or whatever, but somehow that translated into, you think we can make it down the mountain with our lights off? My wife is just shaking her head because she's like, you idiots. Yes, we were exactly that word I won't use again for the podcast. (laughs) So poof, he hits the lights, and we're just flying down this mountain. And then, you know, we're coming around the bend, and we, boom, hit the lights on. Whoa, it's all scary. And then, like, we see a little bit ahead, and then, poof, hit the lights off, and voom, we're flying down it. And we're just like, ah, oh, it's awesome. And then, poof, we turn the lights on. And then there's a rabbit, and we hit the rabbit. Thump, 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 thump. Now, in an 86 Chevy Sprint, that's a big collision, a rabbit, right? We have to, like, psh, hit the brakes. We're sliding out. We get out and look at it. We named him Thumper because the noise he made when we went over the top. But um, <laughs> some of you just hate my guts. I'm 17. Come on. Right? <laughs> Long story short, come on, when you got bros, you, got, you make plans, and they don't always make sense. And this is a plan that doesn't totally make sense, but it's a plan. They got to come up with a plan, okay? And so his plan is how do I figure out if your dad still wants to kill me or not? And Jonathan says, okay, the New Moon festival's is coming, and we always do a big party. It's like a staff dinner. All the highest uh, uh, authorities in my father's army come together for dinner for three days of eating. And so here's going to be the plan, David. You're going to no-show for this three-day dinner. And when you no-show for this three-day dinner, what my dad really feels about you is going to come out. Because if he's got a plan to kill you, he's going to be really upset that you no-show. If he still loves you and is okay with it, we'll give him a good reason. We'll tell him you went home to be with your brothers and celebrate something because you got a big family, and big family always pulls you away on holidays, right? He's like, we'll tell him it's just normal stuff. And if he goes, oh, that's normal stuff, everything's cool, we'll know everything's cool. But if he's ticked off, we'll know that he's really, really, really wanting to still kill you. And David's like, okay, but we can't text We don't have phones, like, right? How am I going to get the answer without coming back and then your dad having an opportunity to kill you, to kill me? So Jonathan says, okay, I got a plan. You're going to go out into this field. This is when guys, right, we're just coming up with the plans, whatever. It doesn't make sense. He's like, I'm going to get my bow and arrow, and I'm going to fire some arrows into the field. Then I'm gonna send my little armor bearer boy and he's gonna run out to get those arrows and you're gonna be hiding in the field. And then I'm gonna give him directions. I don't even care if he wanders in the field forever because I'm not gonna tell him where the arrows are. I'm just gonna tell him a code of what you need to do. So if I say, hey, the arrows are right beside you, then you can pop up, come home, it's fine. But if I say the arrows are beyond you, then you need to run because my dad is coming for you. That's the plan, right? That's their strategy, you're like, okay, he's already in the field. Can you just talk to him? No, that's the, that's the plan. So, uh, And I love this about Jonathan, verse 22, chapter 20, verse 22. It says, but if I say to the boy, look, the arrows are beyond you, catch this, then you must go, now listen, because the Lord has sent you away. Think about that for a second. He doesn't say because my dad is crazy. He doesn't say, he doesn't dishonor his authority. He just recognizes that something has changed in our circumstance, and the Lord wants you to get out of here for a while. Do you see how he recognized that God's still in control in the middle of chaos? You need some friends that recognize that God's still in control when you're in the middle of chaos. That even though, come on now, the worst case scenario may happen, it still may be the plan of God for your life. You need some friends that can come around you and say, you know what, the arrow's beyond you. This is a hard thing to look at. Sometimes, let me say this right. Sometimes the arrow is beyond you, and it's something that you love, and it's something that you want, and it's something that you think should be the plan of God. You maybe even heard, I mean, David was anointed with oil by the prophet. He's expecting to be king. He's expecting to live there. He's expecting Saul to embrace him and hand the kingdom over. Why wouldn't he? They're all doing, we're all on team God. But the arrow's beyond you. The next several years of David's life, he's gonna be in hiding. He's gonna live with the enemy. He's gonna go through some of the worst experiences of his life. You think his faith was tested when it was time to fight Goliath? His faith is tested when the arrow is beyond him, when the goal that God's called him to doesn't happen in the circumstance and the timing that he wants it to happen in. That's when his faith is tested. Not Goliath. Goliath was easy for him. He already faced the bear and the lion, he was used to facing giants. He knew what he could do with that sling with God's help. What he didn't know is what in the world is God doing? I keep getting spears chucked at me. As a matter of fact, the third spear is going to get chucked here in, in, uh, in the middle of this time, but it's chucked at Jonathan this time. When, uh, when dad realizes that David isn't coming to the feast, he looks at Jonathan he's like, you plotted against me. Boom, throws a spear at him. And I love it because it says, then David, then Jonathan knew (laughs) that his dad wanted to kill David. Like he wasn't sure before, but when he's like, woo, praise the Lord that Saul never went to spear chucking practice, right? This would be a horrific short story if Saul could chuck a spear, but he can't. (laughs) And since he can't, it's just an amazing visual, right? So it happens. Uh, We're in verse 28. Jonathan answered. Oh, so Saul's like, where is he? Here comes the spear. Where is he? And Jonathan answered, David earnestly asked me, they're at the dinner, for permission to go to Bethlehem. He said, let me go because my family is observing a sacrifice in the town and my brother has ordered me to be there. If I found favor in your eyes, he's lewing the plan. Let me go and see my brothers. This is why he has not come to the king's table. And Saul's anger flared up at Jonathan. He said, you son of a perverse and rebellious woman. (laughs) Now, you know, he's lost his mind because he's talking about his mama i just let that, just feel that for a second. (laughs) Fellas, come on. Every time our kids are out of control, you're just like your mom. Moms, you do the same thing. Just like your father, right? The worst moment comes out of us. He's like, you son of a perverse and rebellious woman. Don't I know that you've sided with the son of Jesse to your own shame and the shame of your mother who bore you? As long, verse 31, as this son of Jesse lives on the earth, neither you nor your kingdom will be established. Now send and bring him to me for he must die. Here's the truth bomb. Dad does want to kill him. Not only does he want to kill him, he wants to kill him because he thinks that's what's best for me. He thinks that violating God's plan and God's will, which he's been doing as long as he's been king, is actually somehow going to be beneficial for me. Hmm. Ever have your authority say, we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna do the wrong thing here, but it'll be okay because it's better for you. Uh-oh. Jonathan's like, that's not consistent. He's like, I already know what it means to trust God. I climbed up the cliff, and I fought 20 guys, and God was with me. And if the same God I had faith in there says that this is the plan, I'm okay with the plan, Dad. Why aren't you okay with the plan? Verse 32, Jonathan again, why should he be put to death? What has, he been, what has he done? In verse 33, here it is. But Saul hurled the spirit at him to kill him. So then Jonathan knew, there it is, that his father intended to kill David. I like this. Jonathan got up from the table in fierce anger. There's a little, you can just envision the. Seriously, dad, seriously? You are gonna throw the spirit at me? That's what we got to here? If someone throws a spirit at you, you have permission to get angry just want to say that (laughs) on the second day of the month he did not eat because he was grieved at his father's shameful treatment of David although he gets angry it's important to note here he never dishonored his dad he didn't attack him he didn't undermine him he didn't undercut him he just said dad we're doing the wrong thing and he says he got angry he's like dad what has David done to deserve this Just because Saul's in the position of authority, he doesn't get to do whatever he wants. Just because you're in a position of authority, you don't get to do whatever you want. Just because your friend's in a position of authority, you don't get to do whatever you want. Just because I can, just because it's better for me, doesn't always make it right. Just saying. Verse 35, here comes the signal. In the morning, Jonathan went out into the field and he met with David. He had a small boy with him and he said to the boy, run and I'll find the arrows that I shoot, which is just mean. As the boy <laughs> runs, he shots arrows, shoots arrows ahead of him. It says, when the boy came to the place where Jonathan's arrow had fallen, Jonathan called out after him, isn't the arrow beyond you? The arrow's beyond you. And he shouted, hurry, go quickly, don't stop. The boy picked up the arrows and returned to his master. The boy knew nothing of all this, only Jonathan and David knew. It said, then Jonathan gave his weapons to the boy and said, go carry them back to town. Complicated bat signal, bro code, secret handshake accomplished. And the message is danger, run away, run away. I love verse 41. After the boy had gone, David got up from the south side of the stone and bowed down before Jonathan three times with his face to the ground. Then they kissed each other and wept together, but David wept the most. Now listen, David's right there. I don't know why they did this massive secret message. I'm not sure what the point of all that was because David's like, dang it. And he sits up from the field and he goes over and they embrace and they demonstrate their love for each other and they're faithful to one another. And David weeps. Jonathan said to David, go in peace for we've sworn friendship with each other in the name of the Lord saying, the Lord is witness between you and me and between your descendants and my descendants forever. Then David left and Jonathan went back into town. In this story, we get so much About the keys to a great friendship. Think about how much sacrifice was involved. Jonathan sacrificed his positional potential authority. David took his own life into Jonathan's hands and said, I trust you with my life. We see all the characteristics of friendship in Jonathan. We see loyalty. We see loyalty. You can count on me. I've got your back. If you're not a person that someone could say they've got your back, no wonder you don't have great friends. And I know that you're not great friends with people you don't feel have your back. Loyalty. We see loving. We see that he's loving. It says he loved David like he loved himself. You know, the do unto others principle has been true for a long, long, long time. In your best relationships, you literally want the best for other people. Time and time again, we see that it's self-sacrificing. He treats others better than he expects to be treated. We see this over and over again. He loved him like he loved himself. You know, when when Jesus breaks down the greatest commandment, says, love the Lord God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as you love yourself, this is what he's trying to explain He's trying to say, you want as much good for them as you want for yourself. You want God's best for them. Proverbs 18 24, one key in building a great friendship is simply like this A man who has friends must himself be friendly. It's amazing that we don't realize that if we want friends, we've got to be friendly. It's like, God, I want friends. (laughs) And we're not friendly. We're not engaging, we're not warm, we're not loyal, we're not self-sacrificing, we're not any of those things. And we look around and we go, where's our friends? The key to building that great friendship is being willing to be the friend that you wish you had. Being the friend you wish you had. John Maxwell, the great leadership writer, talks about the law of attraction. And he says, you are who you attract. When you look around at your circle and you go, man... There's a bunch of jerks in my circle. You are who you attract. You go, know, man, the people who are closest to me are selfish. The people who are close to me, they, they're not self sacrificing all. They don't give anything. I'm just saying, there's a principle at work there. And the scripture tells us you got to start with you. You got to make a decision to be the kind of person that you want to attract into your life. When I'm talking to teenagers about future courting and dating, we talk about this all the time. Don't look for someone who will fix all the things in you. Be the fixed product and be attracted to someone else who is becoming the fixed product. You are who you attract. If you're a hot mess, you're going to attract a hot mess. And the two hot messes of you are going to have a hard time building something whole. It's going to be a challenge. Some of you are like, I wish you would have talked to me when I was a teenager and you're elbowing somebody. Just saying. What would it look like if we understood friendships this way? What would it look like if we made a decision to be that person? You know what's interesting to me? There's a third person in the story, and it's Saul. And we don't talk as much about Saul other than kind of to mock his whole process, but the thing you've got to recognize is through this whole process, David was a friend to him too. David never turned on him. David never rallied the troops against him. David had opportunity to murder him uh, and end the whole thing. And some of us got some people in our lives who have been Saul's, who we've poured into, treated well, treated great, and they've been chucking spears at us. And we're like, why does this keep happening? And I look at the story and I go, okay, what did David do? Did he just murder that folk? No. Did he just abandon him? No. No. He just continued to love him, continued to live like God, continued to want God's best for him, recognized he didn't have the authority to change him, that he didn't have the positional authority or the responsibility to make them make different decisions. So he created a boundary, as in I'm getting a little bit further away from you, but I'm not gonna wish ill on you. I'm not gonna send my ambassadors over to knock you down. I'm not gonna undercut you in any way. I'm not even willing that you would get removed by force from any situation that would even benefit me because I trust that the Lord's got this. And literally when Saul ends up perishing, David weeps for him. And Jonathan, he's all, Jonathan was not loyal. Jonathan dies right next to his father, fighting and battling with him, not with him on his team, stayed loyal never betrayed his friendship, never betrayed the authority above him, but wouldn't honor authority that wouldn't honor God. Lived in that tension. Some of us are living in that tension, right? We got some friends and you're just like, oh, they're like a soul. Every time I'm around, I just feel like I'm going to die. And he's like, okay, boundaries are good, but wanting the best for them never goes away. And some of you are like, I need a Jonathan. You're like, okay, well, be a Jonathan for someone. Get involved. Connect. Well, where do I get involved and connect? I've been screaming for weeks. Get in a small group. Serve on a team. Get connected to someone who wants their life and trajectory to go the same direction as you want your life and trajectory to go. It's why it's so important in the body that we're connected. We need each other. It's important and it matters. It matters. Is it going to be perfect every time? No. Is there going to be some trial and error? Sure. Are you going to run into some weird folks and you might be the weird folk to them? Sure. It's worth it. Go on the journey. Be the Jonathan until you find the Jonathan. And then connect and stay connected. And be willing to go through the hard times and figure out how to lend your strength to someone and allow them to lend their strength to you. Don't be so proud that you won't allow them to lend their... Some of you don't have good friends because you're too proud to allow anyone to lend their strength to you. You don't want them to see how maybe non-competent you feel like you are. That's absurd. We all know that you don't have it all together because you'd be on that side of heaven if you did. So you don't, so it's okay. We still love you. We still want you and you're still included. God designed us to experience life this way. Would you stand with me? We're gonna pray. I'm gonna pray for you. We're going to close, but I know this was hard for some of you. Some of you still don't agree with me, and that's okay. Your battle is with the word of God. I won't take it personal. You can send me your email, and I'll just send you a verse. <laughs> <It's easy. laughs> I want this for you. As your pastor, I want this for you. Can I just be real honest with you for just a minute? I know we're hitting the end of time here. I've lived in this community for like 15 months now. This community needs people who think this way. We're not good in Puyallup at making friends. Can I just say that? As a visitor coming in, it is dang hard to make friends in this town. There's a lot of cul-de-sacs, not through streets. Come on, right? There's a lot of little neighborhoods that it's like, if you're not right next to me, you can't break into my circle. If you're not on my kid's team, I can't get you in my circle. It's hard Can you imagine the difference we could make in just the South Hill? If we just, just in this little, on this side of Meridian, if we would just be friendly and connect and look for those relationships and welcome people who are looking for those relationships into our lives. I was going to read you some stats earlier, but basically one in four adults right now, when a USA Today survey says they have no close friends, zero. Of the 75%, the three and four that say they have close friends, between 80 and 90% of those are family. So spouse, mom and dad, brother, sister. Short of that, no close friends. What in the world are we doing here, guys? This was not the plan. You weren't supposed to pull into your garage and never get out of, oh, come on now, never get out into the front yard unless you're mowing the lawn with your headphones on and meet anybody. Pre-order your Starbucks drinks on your phone so that you don't have to talk anybody in there and you can walk in and grab your drink and get out. Right? So, oh, I'm too busy to have friends. Then you're too busy. Stop it. Stop it. We were designed for this. <laughs> this little church could change this community if we got a hold of this principle. I'm telling you, this this little location As a guy who's been in this neighborhood for this way for 15 months, it is thirsty for somebody to just love and be friendly and connect. People are literally dying alone. I could tell you stories about people who've died in their houses and no one knew for years until the bank came to close the house that there was someone dead in there because they're just not connected to anybody. That shouldn't be the case, guys. Not where Jesus people live. Not where people who love God live. We could do that. That could be the change. That could be who we are. We could literally change this community that way. How cool would that be? How cool would that be? Wouldn't that be awesome? I don't know. Maybe I'm the only one who thinks it's awesome. God, I think it's awesome that you could use us to love on people. To love on actual people that you love, to build and network our life together with with God, this body, and then making an impact like that in this community. Some of of us are like, I don't live in this community. You're so this community. Okay, do it in your community. I promise your community is is pretty darn close, as tough to make friends in as this one is. Can you imagine the difference that could make if we just came alongside people? And we began to give our time, our proximity, our strength, our talents to building and defining and developing relationships with no agenda, just living as Jesus, and that that we modeled that. Can you imagine the change and the transformation that could happen in people's lives? If we would margin that into our life, God, for those of us that say we don't have time, would you break us of that sinful thinking? It's why you left us here so we could love and connect with one another. If we if we had some other mission, you would have just taking us home when we came into the saving knowledge of your son, that you left us here to connect and to love one another. We got to do that peace right. So break us of that. For those of us that have been connected too much and too deeply to us, all, would you help us to have the right boundaries? to stop pouring our life and energy and resources into someone who, who literally is just killing us on the inside, uh, both emotionally and potentially physically. Sometimes we're just sick because we can't solve it. Would you help us to create great boundaries but still want the best for them? And for those, God, I pray who have just genuinely experienced loneliness and need the connection of good friends, would you bring that around us? Would you bring it in this body? Would you help us to take the initiative and show ourselves friendly? Would we never expect somehow that's some someone else's responsibility. We demonstrate the relational peace. And then you bring that around us and entrust us with that. And it is good. We love you. We thank you. And we just want to say, God, have your way in us. In Jesus name, I pray. Amen. And amen.